You're tuned to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The following program is a rebroadcast of Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill. Welcome to the Miracle Hunter, where it doesn't matter if you're a believer or a skeptic, it's always worth the hunt. My name is Michael O'Neill. I am the Miracle Hunter and creator of the website MiracleHunter.com. I'll be your host for the next hour as we continue our weekly exploration of the world of miracles. Today's program should be a good one. Uh, when we hear stories of miracles, we can't help but wonder, did this really happen? Is this real, or is it just a pious legend? Well, today we'll look at how stories of miracles have affected the faithful throughout the ages, and how these stories, fact or fiction, have led to the construction of some of the world's most beautiful churches, they've been a springboard for the foundation of religious communities, or they've been the source of some of Catholicism's most famous devotions. Later in the program, we'll be speaking with author Kevin Simons, and he'll shed some light on a couple of famous legends that pertain to private revelation. And of course, in just a bit, we'll be asking you a Catholic trivia question, so get your pens and paper ready. Later in the show, we'll be talking about how Our Lady is honored around the world on today, December 17th, in our segment, 365 Days with Mary. For more information on this project, you can go to 365dayswithmary.com or to Facebook, 365 Days with Mary. Each week, we try to cover what's new and exciting in miracle news, and in today's miracle news, we have the interesting story of a miracle that has been attributed to Pope Paul VI, which has been deemed medically inexplicable, and of course, that clears the way for his uh, potential beatification and future canonization, so that's exciting. Um, the Medical Commission of the Congregation of the Causes of Saints, uh, which is chaired by Dr. Patrizio Polisca, um, he was the doctor of Pope Benedict and the, the doctor of Pope Francis, uh, has called a healing attributed to uh, Pope Paul VI unexplainable. Now, this alleged miracle will have to be examined by theologians and cardinals before it receives the Pope's final approval, but the toughest part is over, and it's expected that his beatification will take some time, take place sometime in the next few months. Uh, from the list of reported cases, the postulator of Pope Paul VI's cause, Antonio Marazzo, received, he chose this one, uh, which he says is clearly unexplainable. He chose this case uh, some time ago, and maybe a year ago, Pope Benedict actually approved the heroic virtues of Paul VI, and started the canonical process. Um, and only one miracle is required for beatification. So um, the story behind this miracle is that it was a healing of an unborn child uh, in California in the early 1990s. Uh, during the woman's pregnancy, uh, the doctors found a serious problem with the fetus, which normally results in brain damage, they were saying, and they gave the mother the advice to abort the child. Well, she refused this advice, and she went ahead with the pregnancy, and she put her trust in the intercession of Paul VI, and the child was born without any defects, but only when the child uh, reached puberty could doctors really be sure that the child had made a full recovery without any problems. A year ago, Father Marazzo told the Vatican Radio that, quote, a truly extraordinary and supernatural event had occurred thanks to the intercession of Paul VI, end quote. The Archbishop of Milan, uh, his name is Cardinal Angelo Scola, 
uh, said that this Pope's beatification should be relatively imminent. So we look forward to that. Pretty exciting that so many of our Popes are being recognized for their heroic virtue. So to keep up to date with this story and other stories in Miracle News, uh, please visit MiracleHunter.com and sign up for our newsletter. You'll receive a monthly email with the latest Miracle Hunter news, including reports on the latest Miracle News and stories, links to past radio episode podcasts, update on my television series Miracle Hunter is now in development, and my book Hunting for a Miracle due out in spring of next year, any upcoming speaking engagements, and much, much more. So sign up for the newsletter on MiracleHunter.com by clicking the newsletter link at the bottom of the page. Now, I encourage you to call into the show with your questions, 866-333-MARY. That's 866-333-MARY. We'll be turning to the mailbag, or the email inbox, as it were, for something recently sent to us at questions at MiracleHunter.com. We have a question from listener Pat. She asked, Someone gave me a holy card with a rose petal purportedly blessed by Jesus and Mary. There are transcripts and recordings of Veronica Lucan purportedly talking to Mary. Has this been researched by the Catholic Church, and what is it standing? I don't want to share the information nor listen to all the recordings if this isn't sanctioned by the Catholic Church. Thank you for your information, Pat. So thank you very much, Pat, for, uh, for writing in with your question. And that's the absolute correct attitude. Uh, we all hear about miraculous events and, and things that are going on that are very interesting, but the best thing is, is we need to do a little research and find out if these things are really worth believing in and much less promoting. So that's great that, that, that she's doing that and she's holding back before she uh, gets too involved with it. Um, so unfortunately, however, I have to recommend that you do stay away from these messages attributed to Our Lady of the Roses. Um, this is one of the most famous alleged apparitions in the history of the United States. Verona Lucan is the name of the seer. She reported visions since 1970. She died in 1995 and had visions all the way through, she claimed. And there were some really stunning reports of miraculous phenomena from the location there in Bayside, New York. Um, the, the messages got very strange, however, that she was reporting, um, and she was saying such, such things as the Pope had been abducted and replaced by an imposter Pope. Things like that uh, obviously are a tip that, that there's something wrong. Um, now, Bishop Francis McGavro, the Bishop of Brooklyn, in 1986 stated, a thorough investigation revealed that the alleged visions of Bayside completely lacked authenticity and that the messages and other related propaganda contain statements which, among other things, are contrary to the teaching of the Catholic Church. Uh, you can read the entirety of this document, as well as any other church documents relating to rulings on apparitions, at MiracleHunter.com. So thanks, Pat, for your question and for writing in. And if you have questions for the Miracle Hunter, please email questions at MiracleHunter.com. Each week I'll be asking a trivia question and giving out a prize for a caller that gets the right answer. This week, we'll be giving away a framed image of a piece of artwork entitled The Faces of Mary. It's a photo mosaic of over 100 images of Our Lady that forms a beautiful picture of the Madonna and Child when you step away to look at it. Trivia questions are generously provided by Catholic Pub Trivia, an organization that partners with Catholic parishes, schools, or religious organizations to host trivia night fundraisers at local establishments. For more information on Catholic Pub Trivia, or to organize an event in your area, 
please visit catholicclubtrivia.com. If you've been listening in to previous episodes, you'll notice that we always try to keep with the theme of the program with our questions. And today we'll be talking about popes and miracles, so we're going to keep the question related. Question is, Pope John Paul II abolished the position of the devil's advocate, the person to argue the case against sainthood causes, and changed the number of accredited miracles required for canonization. How many miracles are required for sainthood? So again, that question is, John Paul II changed the number of accredited miracles required for canonization. How many miracles are required now for sainthood? And we will reveal the winner later in the show. For more information on Catholic Pub Trivia, or to organize an event in your area, please visit catholicpubtrivia.com. For those of you just joining the program, this is Michael O'Neill. You're listening to the Miracle Hunter radio show. And for more information on the program or my research on miracles, please visit miraclehunter.com. Each week we're doing a segment which is entitled 365 Days with Mary. This is a new initiative of Miracle Hunter. Uh, It's in the course of my research over the last 15 years on apparitions, miraculous images, and all things Marian. I've come to realize that for each and every day of the year, somewhere in the world, uh, there's, there's a celebration of Our Lady. Now, it never ceases to amaze me how much the world loves the Mother of God and honors her unceasingly throughout the year. This is a project I've been compiling for probably five years now. Uh, through my research, I've assembled all the dates with their feasts into one resource, and I call this project 365dayswithmary.com. Uh, each entry features images, a description of the history of the feast day, along with information on the shrines and prayers that are associated with them. Um, the project is available in print form, um, in the form of a daily calendar, an engagement calendar, a daily planner, as well as online at 365dayswithmary.com. Now, we're also on Facebook and Twitter, where if you like us, you can automatically receive information about each feast day and learn more about our Blessed Mother and how she is honored around the world. So be sure to like 365 Days with Mary on Facebook and visit the website 365dayswithmary.com to see the project. The print version in the form of a daily organizer makes a great gift for anyone with a devotion to Our Lady. Now I'm being told that we have a caller, Jeremy, with the answer to the Catholic Pub Trivia question. Jeremy, are you online? Yes, I am. Welcome uh, to the program, Jeremy. So the question for everybody just tuning in was, how many miracles are required for sainthood? And what was your answer? I believe um, three. Well, that was the old requirement that John Paul II changed. So unfortunately, that is incorrect. So we'll have to have another caller call into the show. But thank you very much for calling in. Thank you. So in our commemoration for today, on December 17th, we have uh, the celebration of the Madonna del Terremoto, Our Lady of the Earthquake, from Paterno, which is in Potenza, Basilicata, Italy. So the story goes that on the evening of December 16, 1857, there was this incredible earthquake that struck the population there of Basilicata and all the neighboring regions. It was truly a disaster. Now, the next day, the residents of Paterno were cleaning up the mess, and they decided to bring Our Lady in procession. Uh, there was a statue that they had. It was uh, Madonna del Carmine, Our Lady of Mount Carmel, and bring her uh, 
that statue in procession throughout the streets. This is a tradition throughout the history of Catholicism that when there's been a great plague or uh, pestilence or other problem, uh, a statue of Our Lady is paraded throughout the streets. And uh, the legend is, is that as soon as the procession reached near the present district, the statue of Mary uh, was brought in front of the destroyed houses, which were, were full of carts of corpses. The statue turned her face, and her eyes began to shed tears of blood. And this miraculous event is commemorated every year on December 17th. So, quite an amazing story, a legendary story perhaps. Uh, it happened in fairly modern times, 1857, so a uh, very interesting story. So, please visit 365dayswithmary.com to find out more about the Madonna del Terremoto. And be sure to like 365 Days with Mary on Facebook, and visit the website 365dayswithmary.com to see the project. And again, the print version makes a great gift for anyone with a devotion to Our Lady. We have another caller with the answer. Uh, Mary, uh, if you're online, uh, let's hear what you have to say. I believe it's two miracles. You are correct. Uh, Very good. Uh, The question again was, how many miracles are required for sainthood? And the answer is two. Traditionally, the, the number was three, as the previous caller had mentioned, but John Paul II reduced that number to two, and the number for beatification is one. So... Thanks very much for calling into the show, and uh, we'll get your information and send you an image of the Faces of Mary. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks again for calling in. That was the uh, trivia question of the day. And uh, today's, for today's program, we're going to be uh, discussing miracles uh, and whether they're legends or they're true miracles. And throughout the history of the Church, there's been uh, an incredible number of miracles. If you go to MiracleHunter.com, you'll see the list of Marian apparitions cataloged on the site. And um, probably one of the earliest miracles that we're all familiar with that was investigated by the Church was Our Lady of Guadalupe, which traditionally occurred in the year 1531. The largest investigation surrounding that apparition happened in the year 1666. Uh, listen to last week's podcast for more information on that, or go to MiracleHunter.com. Now, the history of apparition approval has really changed over the years. Um, going back to the Council of Constance, uh, we had a situation where that was when miracles were first uh, being considered for approval. Prior to that, it was a uh, popular acclaim and tradition that arose around a miraculous happening, and many times there were churches uh, built around these places where these things were claimed. But um, the revelations that were accorded to St. Bridget of Sweden were first considered at the Council of Constance in the year 1414, and later in the Council of Bale in 1431. Later, uh, in the Fifth Lateran Council, uh, the year 1512 to 1517, uh, that reserved the right of approval of new prophecies and revel- revelations to the Holy See. So previously um, it was at the Council, then uh, the Holy See was to take a look at it. Uh, at the Council of Trent, 1545 to 63, that authorized the bishops to investigate and approve the phenomenon before public worship could take place. So first we had the Vatican, now we have the bishops taking a look at it. Um, Prospero Lambertini who was the future Benedict Fourteenth? he uh, established some rules for discernment of private revelation and the miracles needed uh, for canonization causes. 
He wrote this document, De Servorum Dei Beatificatione et De Beatorum Canizatione, in 1840. Now, these events uh, must present themselves to human reason as being truly extraordinary and beyond the cope of natural causes. That was sort of the summary of that document, which, what he, uh, what he uh, established. In the year 1917, the Code of Canon Law uh, forbade the publication of anything about new apparitions, revelations, visions, prophecies, miracles, without the local bishop's approval. So writings about unapproved apparitions were then put on the famous Index of Forbidden Books. In 1966, Paul VI, he was trying to implement the Vatican's statement on the right to mass media and information. He lifted this requirement that all writings about apparitions uh, needing ecclesiastical approval before publication. Now this has caused a great number of alleged miracles because of this lack of requirement uh, to to go through that process. And so that was 1966, and the next major document uh, regarding the criteria for discernment was the norms of the congregation for proceeding judged alleged apparitions and revelations, and that was in 1978. So we have actually an expert on this document, uh, our first guest on the show. Uh, his name is Kevin Simons. And uh, welcome to the show, Kevin. Hello, Michael. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. And uh, I, I know that you've done a lot of work with uh, the norms of the congregation, or the NC for short. Uh, you've translated the document from Latin, and you were one of the, the first people to do so. Can you give us a little background on the document and how you came to be involved with it? Sure. Um, well, first, let me say is that my, my translation came out about three, a little bit three years ago, and I worked on it with uh, two other Latinists. And uh, we weren't, te- by technical technicality, we weren't the only ones that did it. It turned out that somebody up in Canada had also published a translation, but it it was within the realm of academia, and nobody knew about it until after the fact. Um, but I, I started getting into the document when I was researching for my book. Uh, Private Revelation, What Does the Catholic Church Teach? I started that, that book in March of 2008, and um, I was trying to do research on the Church's norms and find out what she taught, what you know, things like that. And um, I came across a book called uh, A Sign in, he- in Heaven by, a Frenchman, by two Frenchmen, and they claimed to have had a copy of the original text, and uh, they translated it into French. And I said, hey, this is good stuff. Um, and then an Englishman named Donald Anthony Foley had an English translation from the French on his website, and uh, it, which was very helpful. But being a, uh, a, a Latin teacher uh, right now, I, I was, I'm, I'm aware that translation of a translation is not always the most reliable. So sure. I contacted uh, my diocese at the time, and I said, is there a possible possibility that I can uh, you know, be permitted to look at this document? And um, the chancellor had actually found it, scanned it, and sent it along to me, and I was like, thank you! (laughs) (laughs) The original Latin, so I was like, this is good stuff! Sure. Um, That's great. And uh, and what what can you tell us about the document? You translate it into English, and of course, uh, it was sort of a secret document that only the bishops had uh, starting in 1978, and it was only recently published, uh, I think it was a year, a year and a half ago, uh, for the rest of the world to look at. So there was really a, a long gap of time between when the bishops had it and between 
uh, when everybody else could take a look at it. What, what do you make of that gap in time? Well, the the way I try to explain that is the document was written for bishops by bishops, and so it presumes a number of things, canon law, pastoral theology, a whole kit and caboodle. And so because it was a in-house document, if, you, if, if, you, if we can call it that, um, it wasn't meant to be given out to the public because it was so dense and so rich, and, I mean, you can spend quite a long time unpacking it. Um, so I, I think that's one of the reasons why it was such a long time between 78 and 2012 when it came out. Um, and it was only released uh, in, in May, I believe, of last year, right. um, because uh, so many other translations had been coming out, and more people have been asking for it, and eventually then the, the prefect of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, Cardinal Nevada, had, had said, you know, here it is. <laughs> um, and they published it uh, with the original Latin text, although it's slightly modified, I noticed. Um, they, they did change a couple little things here and there, uh, but, and then they, they had released it within the major vernacular languages at the same time. And uh, what, for the, for the common person without uh, a background in canon law, what would, you, what would you say that, what's the main, what's the essence of the document? What, what are these instructions uh, really get to uh, as far as when, how we look at private revelation? Well, they approach private revelation primarily from how the Church views the nature of the beast, as it were. Um, I, if I had to sum it up in a word, it's the supernatural character. Um, the Church looks at these matters from within the spectrum of answering a question. Is it from God, or is it not? And so she comes up with these norms based upon her tradition, her theology, divine revelation, um, you know, what, and the, what, what all of these things come together and what they say. Um, but primarily, the, the main aspect is, what does it come across as um, when it's communicating? Is it a supernatural origin or, or not? And so when you look at it from that lens and that perspective, a lot of the document comes right into focus. That's right. And um, one, one thing that struck me about that document is, of course, it gives sort of the criteria for uh, assessing private revelation. Um, now, traditionally, when we look at private revelation, we have one of three scenarios. One where, um, and the, this is the English translation, of course, uh, it is established as supernatural. That's the approval of the Church. Uh, there's a second one where it's established as not supernatural, and the third is it's not established as supernatural. So those those last two points, there's a very fine variation. Um, one being that it's clearly it's really established as the negative judgment, where it's definitely not supernatural. The other one is sort of in a wait and see mode or a maybe kind of situation where more information needs to come to light. But in the document itself, it only lists two of the three possibilities. What do you make of the absence of the the missing one? Well, um, the Church only has two categories on these matters, positive or negative, as indicated in the document itself when it talks about the criteria. And within the negative category, there are those two subsets. Um, I don't know if you... I, uh, I prefer to say the Latin, the Latin but uh, maybe I should just say the English, but um, the two categories are that 
that middle one that you mentioned, which is the, we need a little bit more t- information, some more time to pass. Um, and then there's the straight, no, not from God. So it's actually a subset. People think that it's either black or white when it comes to negative, and it's like, no, the, there's actually, uh, uh, the church has kind of split that. And I think it's reflected in the document. Uh, I was talking some time ago with um, with the Canadian uh, psychologist, um, I think that's what he does, uh, Louis Belanger, and uh, he, he had a, a very, very good man. Um, and he was talking to me about how uh, his take on um, on this aspect of it is. And he was telling me about how uh, when you look at it from within the perspective of canon law, because um, it does talk about the, the what do we call the three constats, the, the, the constat, then the constat de non, and the non-constat, which is those three categories. Um, but he was saying to me how he thought that they uh, they really explain a lot, and they, they really truncate, and they, they, they pack things in there, and that it, in and of itself, if the Church only says one of those in the negative category, because it was written by bishops or bishops, um, it, it, it's kind of understood. You know, you don't have to go over the whole thing. Um, that's, again, this is one of those examples of it was an in-house document, and so it wasn't intended to give the fullness of, of everything. And I was talking with a reputable and well-known Mariologist in Europe a couple of years ago, and uh, he told me that he had contacted uh, the CDF, and they had said that, in fact, those three categories are still in place. But um, it, it is an interesting uh, omission why all three are not in the document. But my personal take on it is, I think it's, when you read it from the perspective of in-house document, it's just understood. And then when you also view it from that, that in the negative category, there are the two subsets, everything just kind of falls into place. Sure. And th- there, are, there are different camps who interpret um, that, a negative category that's that's listed in that 1978 document. Some who will say, well, it's really just a maybe, and we're waiting for more information, and, and it isn't truly negative, but um, as it's one of two possibilities presented in that document, it is, by definition, negative. So my question for you is, if something is given that sort of wait-and-see uh, judgment, the uh, known constant judgment, would you say that is leaning more towards the negative side, or that is truly negative, or, or is it is it in fact in the middle and it doesn't have any sort of uh, tinge either way? Well, it depends upon the disposition of the commission or the bishop or whoever uh, is the one, uh, the person that, that gives the opinion on the matter, which usually is the ordinary, but sometimes his opinion is what the commission is. Um, it, it's somebody could be favorably disposed forward saying that this is Our Lady or Our Lord or an angel or a saint appearing, but if the evidence just doesn't warrant it, they have to go by uh, by the book, as it were, and so they may be personally disposed to say more, but they just can't, there's just not enough evidence. So because there's that subjective element to it, it's kind of hard to say whether or not it's, it's um, if it leans one way or the other, because it, it's going to depend upon the facts of the case, the, the people looking at, at, at those facts. Um, I personally tend to think more in the negative category, but I, I view it within that. I view it straight within that perspective of is it supernatural or not. So sure. if if a bishop was calling upon me to do something, 
for him for to investigate a claim, I would, uh, if I had to give the non-constat, more than likely I would probably be personally disposed to say probably not, but there's just enough where just enough room for doubt. Sure, and of course, when when something re- receives that um, wait and see judgment, the non-constat judgment, the faithful, especially supporters of that devotion, are. Uh, in a tricky spot, or they 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 continue with their devotion in most cases because it hasn't been slammed with that negative judgment. Um, and a lot of times, what happens is uh, people point to the ability to just carry out their devotion, even if it if it does have that slightly negative angle to it. And one thing that people like to point to, and it's propagated all over the internet, as you know, is the um, Pope Urban the Eighth uh, comments this uh, legendary statement from Pope Urban VIII, which he said, in summary, it's better to believe in private revelation than not to believe. What can you tell us about that uh, famous statement? Is it a real statement, or is it a legend? As far as I could tell, nobody knows. I only know of one person who has claimed to have done the research and, like, and found the actual quote, and he says that quote is taken far out of context. But when I said to him, hey, do you remember where I can find it? He's like, no, unfortunately, I don't. It was many years ago. I was like, well, that doesn't help me. <laughs> um, so is there anything about Pope Urban that would uh, indicate that he might have said this? Is, is this something, uh, a, a predisposition of his that's revealed in other documents? Or, or what, what, can we, what can we guess at this, this famous statement? Well, um, the, he, Pope Urban the A's did, in fact, discuss private revelation in a couple of, uh, I think they were absolutely, constitutions or papal bulls. One is called uh, Sanctissimus Dominus Nostia, and the other one is Celestis Jesus of um, One was, the first one I think was 1625, and the other one was 1634, so about within nine, ten years of each other. And uh, these documents were actually foundational. Uh, I, you mentioned uh, Cardinal Lambertini and De Sororum Dei earlier in the intro to the, to the program. Um, these two documents from Urban were actually foundational for uh, Benedict XIV's processes of uh, beatification and canonization. And, of course, if you're looking at somebody being uh, up for, for sainthood, uh, for being recognized as such, sometimes they have miracles or apparitions uh, attributed to them, and so that's going to be part of the investigation. So Urban saw uh, such pious traditions within that context, and he wrote about them in those two documents. And he uh, said, essentially, what you said earlier, is that they have to undergo that process of approval by the Church. You can't just, you know, crank them out in a publishing and just, you know, not talk to your bishop or your priest or the Pope about it. Um, so so if, if, in fact, uh, you know, he was sort of encur- encouraging uh, the proper ecclesiastical approval uh, before things were published or the devotion necessarily swelled up around them, would it, it, it would be, it would be uh, likely that he didn't say this statement then, correct? That, you know, we should just believe in everything, hoping that it's all true, and if it's, uh, if it's not true, we'll still receive the graces as if it were. Uh, that's some <laughs> rough paraphrase of what circulates around the Internet. Uh, but, but from his writings, we, w- would it be a best guess to say that he most likely didn't say this? By the books, it, it can go either which way, because the Pope was talking about disseminating materials as opposed to what one can privately believe. Um, so if, if, if you go with that distinction, it's possible that he said it. It's just nobody has said his book, chapter, and verse. Um, 
but but once we know how, what he actually said on the subject, it kind of puts the onus of um, of responsibility on those who promote the claim to come up with where where the where the quote can be found. Sure. Um, so and like many things on the internet, that is repeated over and over on various websites. Um, so that that's that's fairly interesting stuff. Um, now, of course, there's uh, the tradition of the uh, of the papacy related to to miracles is is fairly fairly large. Um, we have uh, we have such things as the uh, Battle of Lepanto, where the Pope uh, encouraged uh, the world, the Christian world to uh, there's Pope Pius V. He encouraged the the world to pray uh, for the the conquer of the Ottoman forces uh, in a naval battle. Um, and then you also have uh, cases where allegedly Pope Pius XII, he said he witnessed the miracle of the sun uh, four times uh, in 1950. And then there's this very famous story that, uh, again, it circulates around the Internet and among uh, popular circles, sort of a, an ideological myth to explain why things are so bad in this past century. The legend or the story of Pope Leo the Thirteenth. Uh, in 1884, as he had a vision, and and that inspired him to write the the Saint Michael prayer. What can you tell us about that legend, the Pope Leo the Thirteenth legend? I've always found that so so fascinating. Can you shed a little bit of light on that? Sure. Um, I've actually been doing some extensive research on that claim, and I've crossed Spanish, German, Latin, Italian uh, resources, and it's been absolutely fascinating what I've been able to uh, to discover. Um, so the story goes that one day, or around 1884 um, to 1886, Leo XIII suddenly collapsed uh, at the Vatican after or during, the tale varies, but um, he collapsed and when he came to, he said he had a vision, he saw that the devil was given the 20th century uh, to try and test the Church. Well, um, I've gone back and I've, I've been able to, to sift fact from fiction, and I can state definitively, it is true, Leo did have a vision, and it was the origin uh, or the, the, the reason why Pope Leo XIII wrote the prayer to St. Michael, the, very, the famous one, the, the shorter version, the one that was said on um, the prayers after low mass before the liturgical reforms of Vatican II. Um, and the contents of the vision are, are not known in their entirety, but what we do know from the uh, credible resource, witnesses and you know, people that wrote about it um, is that it involved a vision of demons congregating upon the Eternal City, which is understood to be Rome. Um, and according to another uh, apparently credible witness, um, the vision involved uh, Freemasonry as well. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so we do. So we do know that there's a, a vision. Uh, we don't know any of the details uh, related to it. Um, is there has there been anything written about this other than sort of the repeating of the legend? Uh, on a scholarly level, not much. What I've been able to dig up are seemingly in like, comments just embedded in various locations. Like one of the witnesses is um, is a is Cardinal Nassali uh, from uh, I think the Archdiocese of Bologna in Italy. He wrote about it in 1946 or so in some pastoral letters for Lent. Um, and I have consulted the Italian, and you know, it, it, it is in fact, you know, he does say that he uh, that this is true, and he heard it, he says, from Pope Leo's personal secretary, Monsignor Ronaldo Angeli. And um, 
who was by the Pope almost from day one throughout the entire pontificate. So uh, because Nasali shows his sources and says, I got it from this guy, and this guy was Pope's right-hand man for so many years, that tends to be a very credible line. Um, other stories involve, the famous, as I said, the famous conversation where the 20th century was given over to the devil. I have not been able to uh, verify that for sure, but um, in some seemingly credible sources, they do repeat that. And it is very interesting to note that none of the credible or seemingly credible sources say that it was the whole 20th century. The highest they specify is only 60 years, mm. which leads into quite some really interesting questions. I don't know if we, we would have time to get into some of those questions. but um, Sure. One question that's, uh, that I always get when you know the discussion of this St. Michael prayer comes up is, why would, why would Jesus give the devil... 60, 75, 100 years to do what he wants. What, what's, the, what, 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 what's the logic behind that in the story as it goes? Um, within, the, I mean, within the legends, uh, there's nothing in the actual reputable uh, thing itself, um, except one little line from an Italian priest who was the head of the, um, the Oblate, I believe, the Oblate of the Virgin Mary Order, I think, um, Padre Pescinino. He likens it to what happened between God and Satan and Job in, in the book of Job, that um, the devil one day was before God and had boasted that, if you give me more time and more power, I can destroy your church. And uh, supposedly Jesus said, how much time do you need? And the devil specified 50 to 60 years. And Jesus says, allegedly, you have the time, you have the power, uh, go do what you will, and at the end we will settle accounts. Um, and again, uh, it's not verified, but I, I, I think Pech, uh, Padre Pescinino gives the, the clue when he talks about the, the Job. If we're talking about the Church being the witness and uh, the mother and teacher, the mistress of all nations, um, there has to be that time of trial in order to prove what she says. I mean, St. Augustine, I think, puts it best. He says, Her- heresies, O Lord, make the tenets of your Church stand out even more. And so, if the Church is going to be subjected to this trial, the purpose is so that at the end, you know, she goes through this passion and this crucifixion to reach the resurrection. So, I, I, I think that there is something of, of that involved, but from the straight stories themselves, um, the, the legends, there's not much that uh, to go by other than what uh, Padre Pescinino uh, remarks. Sure. So, that's uh, yeah, that's uh, interest, an interesting tradition that uh, that's come up, and of course, my name is Michael, so I've always uh, loved the St. Michael prayer, and I've always tried to learn what I can, but that's, uh, that's a wonderful way to, to shed light on it. Um, and uh, so, again, this is a, sort of a, a legendary story, as, as, you, as you mentioned, that, that may have a little bit of truth to it, as far as that there was a claimed vision there, and um, that inspired him to, to write the prayer there. Um, so that's... Uh, so that's interesting. Now, do you know anything about uh, other papal miracles, such as the ones I mentioned before, uh, the Battle of Lepanto uh, miracle, or, or anything else where popes have been uh, experiencing miracles or visions? Uh, have, have you heard any other stories than the one, the one just mentioned? Well, the Pi- Pope St. Pius V story is, has long since passed into you know, the, the larger Catholic ethos. I mean, I, that's never been 
uh, really disputed, and you know, it's, it's been pretty sure. I mean, he, he had a vision that the Battle of Lepanto had been won, and when somebody came to him and reported it to him, he said, he's like, yes, I know. Uh, it was won, I don't know how many hours ago, or something like that. Um, and uh, the one that I've kind of followed a little bit more than the Pius V story is the um, Miracle of the Sun with uh, Pope Venerable uh, Pius XII. Um, yeah. I found it interesting when the uh, when that story was getting released around on the, again on the rounds recently, they left out an important fact to the story, which was people say that it was some somebody had made a comment about it and we didn't really know about it until about four or five years ago. Somebody found a handwritten note from Pius the Twelfth himself. That's that wasn't entirely true. There was a gentleman who uh, I believe he was an Italian count who wrote about the. The, the, the story in French. Uh, it was a book called Pied du Devant l'Histoire. Um, uh, I can't remember the French word for, for Avant, but it's like Pius XII, uh, before, before or after history. And uh, this gentleman writes about how, you know, the Pope had in fact seen this vision. If I, if I remember, I'm not con- um, mixing up my facts. So I, I found that, that omission to be very interesting. When people said it wasn't until we found this note of or it was just some cardinal that we had a remark on. I was like, no, it was a little bit more than that. But um, when it, when the when Pius had had seen the miracle of the sun, he took it as confirmation of his uh, impending of the um, uh, proclamation of the Assumption of Our Lady in November of 1950. Um, and he was a he was a very devoted pope. Very very he was Marian to the core. And um, it's been very sad to see how you know how slandered he's been in recent years. Uh, and, and or decades on the matter. He was a very holy pope. Um, but that, that's kind of one of the stories that I tend to follow, because it's connected to Fatima, and uh, that's a that's, uh, particular revelation I tend to uh, pay close attention to. Sure. No, that's, that's excellent. That's a great background. Um, now, you personally, uh, you, you attended uh, Franciscan University and have a bachelor's and master's degree from there and uh, a background in classical language. Um, how did you get involved in studying private revelation? Clearly, with your answers, you've really spent a lot of time uh, delving into it and delving into some of these legends and stories, and you, it sounds like you have a personal interest in them. How did you first uh, get started with, with your research? Well, uh, to, to, to make a long story short, I've always had kind of an, uh, an interest or a or mind towards all things um, uh, mystical, if you will. And uh, that was very much true when I was, I'm a convert to, to Catholicism. I became Catholic in 1997, and that was actually part of my conversion, was uh, reading about things and you know things of that sort. One of the books that I was given uh, by people that were helping me learn to become Catholic was a book by uh, Michael Brown, the author of Spirit Daily. I know I hope I'm not breaking any laws by, <laughs> by mentioning that, um, you know, the name there publicly, but... Um, and I just I just found some of that stuff absolutely fascinating, and um, and then cousins of mine were telling me stories about you know uh, various claims of, of like Mary appearing somewhere, and so for somebody who already had an eye towards all things mystical, I was like, this happens in the Catholic Church, what? Uh-huh. Um, and then. Uh, after becoming Catholic, and I started formally my theological studies, it continued to be an area of interest. Um, I got involved in discussions on the seemingly always hotbed issue of Medjugorje, and yes. one thing led to another, and boom, 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 I was, here I am today. Um, and uh, I know you've, you, uh, you've published uh, many articles on the Internet and in magazines, uh, and your, 
uh, working on a book now, or you, or you finished a book. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the book that you've, you've done? Well, the book is called uh, Private Revelation, what, uh, what Does the Catholic Church Teach? It's a very, very simple book. It's uh, 201 questions and answers um, with an appendix and uh, you know, like um, endnotes where that ex- apply extensive commentary as well as providing where my sources are. Um, and it just it just walks very simple through very basic questions to some of the more complicated ones, like what is private revelation, uh, all the way to questions about Urban the Eighth. What did Pope Paul the Sixth really do in 1966 when when he abrogated the, the, those two canons from um, the 1917 Code of Canon Law? That is a fascinating story, and I spend a good chunk of time, and I, I walk people through the document. I provide the documents in translation. Uh, some of which have never seen translations before. Uh, so, and I just and I walk people through just and say, okay, this is what they say. This is what people said at the time. Do you think this is true? Uh, so it's very very simple. It's not designed to be catechetical, but it is designed to be a useful tool in helping your average everyday Catholic, as well as your more scholarly Catholics. It's it's designed uh, for uh, for both. Um, for both people on, the, on, the, on that spectrum, uh, sure. really kind of wet their whistle and just really get into it and say, wow, I didn't know this before. Um, the book was granted the imprimatur by my bishop, uh, Joe Vasquez of the Diocese of Austin, um, and it is trying to... Uh, I had a publisher, but then that fell through, so it's kind of like, what's going on? Um, but yeah, so it, it, it's pending still, but it is proved. Uh, it's gone through the process of censorship and um, so I'm hoping it'll be out relatively soon. That's great. And, uh, you know, if you're anything like me, uh, and if your friends and, and colleagues know that you uh, have this interest in miracles, uh, they'll often fire a few interesting uh, questions your way uh, via email or in person. I, You know, it's, it's funny, every time I go to a party with new people and somehow it slips out that... I'm the miracle hunter, and I like researching miracles. Uh, everybody's got a, a question for me. Uh, what, what would you say is a common question that you run into from friends or colleagues regarding miracles? Uh, miracle, like just just miracles, or oh, sure. Uh, as far as what, how the church views certain ones, or how you know how they're approved, or what what would you say a or are miracles real? What what do what do people ask you about it? Uh, you are an expert in this, and, and your friends certainly know this, so. Uh, what, do, what do people approach you with as far as questions? It's usually a toss-up between, like, uh, three questions. Um, have you ever had a, 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 a mystical experience? Or have you, um, like, what's your opinion on Medjugorje? That's probably, I have to say that's probably number one. Um, or what does the Church really teach on X, Y, or Z, you know, fill in the blank? Well, those tend to be, would probably, I'd say, probably be the, the three that I would, top three that, that, I, that I could ask. And it sounds like um, if people uh, get your book when it comes out, though, any any sort, it'll be a frequently asked questions or common questions related to miracles, and people will be able to get their answers that way. So, um, sounds like a great book. Can't wait till it comes out. So, thanks so much for joining us today, Kevin. Um, any any uh, last plugs on where people can read your articles or find out more about you? Well, um, I, uh, I w- I'm published on the website CatholicLane.com. And you'll find several of my articles that I've written, some about private revelation, some not, some are just like comments on commentaries on like liturgical chants or things of that sort. Um, but it's like CatholicLane.com, it's all, all one word. 
and that tends to be where um, most of my stuff is. I have a private blog, but um, it's just that private. <laughs> um, and it, so, but uh, you know, it's, but it, I may make that public in the future. But um, and also, I just before the interview began, uh, Michael, uh, I got a phone call, uh, and I was told to pass a message along to you. The purgatory lady says hello, <laughs> Susan Tassone. That's great. <laughs> yeah, she. Uh, yeah, we're we're always in good touch, and um, that's wonderful that she says hello. So, so good. Well, thank you for that, and thanks so much for joining us today, Kevin. Um, happy to have you on, and I'm sure we'll be in communication over email and otherwise uh, in the coming months. So, thanks so much. Well, thank you much. It's been a pleasure. And that was Kevin Simons, everyone, uh, with his discussion on private revelation. Uh, we discussed, if you're just tuning into the show uh, at the tail end here, we discussed some of the um, miracles and legends of the Catholic Church. Of course, um, many of the miracles uh, preceding uh, some of the later judgments of the Church where they did more thorough investigations were um, more by legend and more by traditional approval, but that hasn't stopped sort of some of the construction of the largest churches, uh, most beautiful churches in history. Um, Our Lady of the Snows is a beautiful uh, devotion, for example, that relates to uh, St. Mary Major, some of the largest uh, Marian devotions. Uh, the Rosary, for example, is given to us in legend uh, by the Blessed Virgin Mary. And all the scapular, all the flavors of the scapular, as I like to say, brown, black, green, and red, they all come from stories and legends of apparitions of Our Lady, and they may be true, they may just be legends, but uh, they're beautiful stories nonetheless. And uh, there's many religious orders, in fact, the Mercedarians, the Servites, the Passionists, uh, they all come from stories of apparitions of Our Lady as a foundational moment. Um, so so really, these, these stories, whether true or just pious legends, uh, they're all beautiful uh, supports to our faith, and they've all, they've all led to to the, the growth of the Catholic Church. So so visit MiracleHunter.com for uh, any of any details on these, these stories, uh, the investigated and approved apparitions of Our Lady and those that are more legendary and traditional of, uh, in their approval, approval mode, and, uh, and you'll find out more information there. And that's all the time we have for today. Uh, I'd like to thank our guest, Kevin Simons, for his insights and for joining us on this episode. Uh, remember to check out MiracleHunter.com and 365dayswithmary.com. And we will not be uh, on the air with a live episode on Christmas Eve, uh, so I think they'll, they'll run some reruns, but we'll be back after that. So here's wishing you and yours a joy-filled Christmas and holiday season. Thank you for joining me on Miracle Hunter, where it doesn't matter if you're a believer or a skeptic, but it's always worth the hunt. You're tuned to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you just heard was a rebroadcast of Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill.